0: Chapter four Part one of the American Credo by HL Mankin and George Jean Nathan This Librivox recording is in the public domain. It seems to us that the genuine characters of the normal American, the characters which set him off most saliently from the men of other nations, are the fruits of all this risk of and capacity for change in status that we have described, and of the dreads and hesitations that go therewith the american is marked in fact by precisely the habits of mind and act that one would look for in a man insatiably ambitious and yet incurably fearful to wit the habits on the one hand of unpleasant assertiveness of somewhat boisterous braggartism of incessant pushing and on the other hand of conformity caution and subservience he is forever talking of his rights as if he stood ready to defend them with his last drop of blood and forever yielding them up at the first demand. Under both the pretension and the fact is the common motive of fear. In brief, the common motive of the insecure and uncertain man, the average man, at all times and everywhere, but especially the motive of the average man in a social system so crude and unstable as ours. More than any other people, said Wendell Phillips one blue day, we Americans are afraid of one another, the saying seems harsh it goes counter to the national delusion of uncompromising courage and limitless truculence it wars upon the national vanity but all the same there is truth in it here more than anywhere else on the earth the status of an individual is determined by the general consent of the general body of his fellows here as we have seen there are no artificial barriers to protect him against their disapproval or even against their envy and here more than anywhere else the general consent of that general body of men is colored by the ideas and prejudices of the inferior majority here there is the nearest approach to genuine democracy the most direct and accurate response to mob emotions facing that infinitely powerful but inevitably ignorant and cruel corpus of opinion the individual must needs adopt caution and fall into timorousness The desire within him may be bold and forthright, but its satisfaction demands discretion, prudence, a politic and ingratiating habit. The walls are not to be stormed. They must be wooed to a sort of Jerichoan fall. Success thus takes the form of a series of waves of protective coloration. Failure is a succession of unmaskings. The aspirant must first learn to imitate exactly the aspect and behavior of the group he seeks to penetrate there follows notice there follows toleration there follows acceptance thus the hog murderer's wife picks her way into the society of chicago the proud aristocracy of the abattoir and thus no less the former whiskey-drummer insinuates himself into the elks and the rising retailer wins the imprimatur of wholesalers and the rich peasant becomes a planter and the father of doctors of philosophy and the servant-girl enters the movies and acquires the status of a princess of the blood and the petty attorney becomes a legislator and statesman and schmidt turns to smith and the newspaper reporter becomes a littérateur on the staff of the saturday evening post and all of us Yankees creep up, up, up. The business is never to be accomplished by headlong assault. It must be done circumspectly, insidiously, a bit apologetically, pianissimo. There must be no flaunting of unusual ideas, no bold prancing of an unaccustomed personality. Above all, it must be done without exciting fear, lest the portcullis fall and the whole enterprise go to pot above all the manner of a jenkins must be got into it that manner of course is not incompatible with a certain superficial boldness nor even with an appearance of truculence but what lies beneath the boldness is not really an independent spirit but merely a talent for crying with the pack when the american is most dashingly assertive it is a sure sign that he feels the pack behind him and hears its comforting baying and is well aware that his doctrine is approved He is not a joiner for nothing he joins something whether it be a political party a church a fraternal order or one of the idiotic movements that incessantly ravage the land because joining gives him a feeling of security because it makes him a part of something larger and safer than he is himself because it gives him a chance to work off steam without running any risk the whole thinking of the country thus runs down the channel of mob emotion there is no actual conflict of ideas but only a succession of crazes it is inconvenient to stand aloof from these crazes and it is dangerous to oppose them in no other country in the world is there so ferocious a short way with dissenters in none other is it socially so costly to heed the inner voice and to be one's own man thus encircled by taboos the american shows an extraordinary timorousness in all his dealings with fundamentals and the fact that many of these taboos are self-imposed only adds to their rigour. What every observant foreigner first notices canvassing the intellectual life of the land is the shy and gingery manner in which all the larger problems of existence are dealt with. We have, for example, positive laws which make it practically impossible to discuss the sex question with anything approaching honesty. The literature of the subject is enormous and the general notion of its importance is thereby made manifest but all save a very small part of that literature is produced by quacks and addressed to an audience that is afraid to hear the truth so in politics almost alone among the civilized nations of the world the united states pursues critics of the dominant political theory with medieval ferocity condemning them to interminable periods in prison proceeding against them by clamour and perjury, treating them worse than common blacklegs, and at times conniving at their actual murder by the police, and so, above all, in religion. This is the only country of Christendom in which there is no anti-clerical party, and hence no constant and effective criticism of clerical pretension and corruption. The result is that all of the churches reach out for tyranny among us, and that most of them that show any numerical strength already exercise it. In half a dozen of our largest cities, the Catholic Church is actually a good deal more powerful than it is in Spain or even in Austria. Its acts are wholly above public discussion. It makes and breaks public officials. It holds the newspapers in terror. It influences the public and the courts. It is strong enough to destroy and silence any man who objects to its polity. But this is not all. The Catholic Church, at worst, is an organization largely devoted to perfectly legitimate and even laudable purposes, and it is controlled by a class of men who are largely above popular passion and intelligent enough to see beyond the immediate advantage. More important still, its international character gives it a detached and superior point of view, and so makes it stand aloof from some of the common weaknesses of the native mob this is constantly revealed by its opposition to prohibition vice crusading and other such crazes of the disinherited and unhappy the rank and file of its members are ignorant and emotional and are thus almost ideal cannon fodder for the bogus reformers who operate upon the proletariat but they are held back by their clergy to whose superior interest in genuine religion is added a centuries-old heritage of worldly wisdom thus the church of rome in america at least is a civilizing agency and we may well overlook its cynical alliance with political corruption in view of its steady enmity to that greater corruption which destroys the very elements of liberty peace and human dignity it may be a bit too intelligently selfish and harshly realistic but it is assuredly not swinish this adjective however fits the opposition as snugly as a coat of varnish and by the opposition we mean the group of Protestant churches, commonly called Evangelical, to wit, the Methodist, the Baptist, the Presbyterian, and their attendant imitators and inferiors. It is out of this group that the dominating religious attitude of the American people arises, and, in particular, is from this group that we get our doctrine that religious activity is not to be challenged, however flagrantly it may stand in opposition to common honesty and common sense under cover of that artificial toleration the product not of a genuine liberalism but simply of a mob distrust of dissent there goes on a tyranny that it would be difficult to match in modern history save in a few large cities every american community lies under a sacerdotal despotism whose devices are disingenuous and dishonorable and whose power was magnificently displayed in the campaign for prohibition a despotism exercised by a body of ignorant, superstitious, self-seeking, and thoroughly dishonest men. One may, without prejudice, reasonably defend the Catholic clergy. They are men who, at worst, pursue an intelligible ideal and dignify it with a real sacrifice. But in the presence of the Methodist clergy it is difficult to avoid giving way to the weakness of indignation. What one observes is a horde of uneducated and inflammatory dunderheads, eager for power intolerant of opposition and full of a childish vanity a mob of holy clerks but little raised in intelligence and dignity above the forlorn half-wits whose souls they chronically rack in the whole united states there is scarcely one among them who stands forth as a man of sense and information illiterate in all save the elementals untouched by the larger currents of thought drunk with their power over dolts crazed by their immunities a challenge by their betters they carry over into the professional class of the country the spirit of the most stupid peasantry, and degrade religion to the estate of an idiotic phobia. There is not a village in America in which some such preposterous jackass is not an eruption. Worse, he is commonly the leader of its opinion, its pattern in reason, morals, and good taste. Yet worse, he is ruler as well as pattern, wrapped in his sacerdotal cloak he stands above any effective criticism to question his imbecile ideas is to stand in contumacy of the revelation of god a number of years ago while engaged in journalism in a large american city one of us violated all journalistic precedents by printing an article denouncing the local evangelical clergy as with few exceptions a pack of scoundrels and offered in proof their brisk and constant trade in contraband marriages, especially the marriages of girls under the age of consent. He showed that the offer of a two-dollar fee was sufficient to induce the majority of these ambassadors of Christ to marry a girl of fourteen or fifteen to a boy a few years older. There followed a great outcry from the accused, with the usual demands that the offending paper print a retraction and discharge the guilty writer from its staff he thereupon engaged a clipping bureau to furnish him with clippings from the newspapers of the whole country showing the common activities of the evangelical clergy elsewhere the result was that he received and reprinted an amazing mass of putrid scandal greatly to the joy of that moral community it appeared that these eminent christian leaders were steadily engaged north east south and west in doings that would have disgraced so many ward healers or oyster shuckers shady financial transactions, gross sexual irregularities, all sorts of minor crimes. The publication of this evidence from day to day gave the chronicler the advantage of the offensive, and so got him out of the tight place. In the end, as if tickled by his assault, the hierarchy of heaven came to his aid. That is to say, the Lord God Jehovah arranged it that one of the leading Methodist clergymen of the city, in fact the chronicler's chief opponent, should be taken in an unmentionable sexual perversion at the headquarters of the young men's Christian association, and so be forced to leave town between days. This catastrophe, as we say, the chronicler ascribes to divine intervention. It was clearly unexpected, he knew that the fellow was a liar and a rogue, but he had never suspected that he was also a hog. The episode demoralized the defense to such an extent that it was impossible, in decency, to go on with the war. The chronicler was, at once, in fact, forced into hypocritical efforts to prevent the fugitive ecclesiastics' pursuit, extradition, trial, and imprisonment, and these efforts, despite their disingenuous character, succeeded. Under another name, he now preaches Christ and Him crucified in the Far West, and is, we dare say, a leading advocate of prohibition, vice-crusading, and the other Methodist reforms. But here we depart from the point— it is not that an eminent Wesleyan should be taken in criminal conversation with a member of the YMCA. It is that the whole Wesleyan scheme of things, despite the enormous multiplication of such incidents, should still stand above all direct and devastating criticism in America. It is an ignorant and dishonest cult of ignorant and dishonest men, and yet no one has ever had at it from the front. All the newspaper clippings that we have mentioned were extraordinarily discreet every offense of a clergyman was presented as if it were an isolated phenomenon and of no general significance there was never any challenge of an ecclesiastical organization which bred and sheltered such men and carried over their curious ethics into its social and political activities that careful avoidance of the main issue is always observable in these states prohibition was saddled upon the country against the expressed wish of at least two-thirds of the people by the political chicanery of the same organization and yet no one during the long fight thought to attack it directly to have done so would have been to violate the taboo described so when the returning soldiers began to reveal the astounding chicaneries of the young men's christian association it was marveled at for a few weeks as americans always marvel at successful pocket squeezings but no one sought the cause in the character of the pious brethren primarily responsible and so again when what is called liberal opinion began to revolt against the foreign politics of dr wilson and in particular against his apparent repudiation of his most solemn engagements and his complete insensibility in the presence of a moral passion to the most elementary principles of private and public honor a thousand critics friendly and unfriendly sought to account for his amazing shifts and evasions on unintelligible logical grounds but no one so far as we know ventured to point out that his course could be accounted for in every detail and without any mauling of the facts whatsoever upon the simple ground that he was a presbyterian we sincerely hope that no one will mistake us here for anarchists who seek to hold the presbyterian code of ethics or the presbyterians themselves up to derision we confess frankly that as private individuals we are inclined against the code and that all our prejudices run against those who subscribe to it which is to say, in the direction of toleration, of open dealing, and even of a certain mild snobbishness. We are both opposed to moral enthusiasm, and never drink with a moral man if it can be avoided. The taboos that we personally subscribe to are taboos upon the very things that Presbyterians hold most dear, for example, moral certainty, the proselyting appetite, and what may be described as the passion of the policeman. But we are surely not fatuous enough to cherish our ideas to the point of fondness, In the long run, we freely grant, it may turn out, that the Presbyterians are right and we are wrong, in brief, that God loves a moral man more than he loves an amiable and honorable one. Stranger things, indeed, have happened. One might even argue, without absurdity, that God is actually a Presbyterian himself. Whether he is or is not, we do not presume to say. We simply record the fact that it is our present impression that he is not, and then straightway admit that our view is worth no more than that of any other pair of men. End of chapter 4, part 1